The following audio is from a sermon series on the book of Ecclesiastes, taking a long look at life under the sun. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the word of the Lord. Not your typical Mother's Day text. I'm glad you joined us this morning. Um, We're just working verse by verse through the book of of Ecclesiastes, and so we're in chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get started. Father, we thank you for how you've uh, shown your goodness to us already this morning. We're reminded um, of our own brokenness, of our own sinfulness, but also that you welcome sinners and that you redeem the broken, that you love us. Um, and you sent your son to live the perfect life and die the death that we deserve for us. And you brought us into this new community. Thank you for giving new life. Thank you for the mothers. Thank you for this church family. Thank you for the life that is here. And now I ask that you would help me. Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would you help us hear your word this morning? Would you teach us what it means to be people who worship you? Um, what this gathering should look like, what our worship to you should look like. Would you instruct us from your word this morning? I ask this for our good and for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why are we studying the book of Ecclesiastes? It's a downer. Well, we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes because we don't want our life to be a waste. That's why. Solomon teaches us in this book how well, basically, it teaches us all these different ways that we can waste our life. And unfortunately, our life does not come with an instruction manual or a set of warning lights that begin to flash when we're going off track, right? You don't have an oil light on your life that says maintenance needed, right? Many times we only see our failures when we're looking in the rearview mirror, we look back and we say, oh man, that's where I made the mistake. That's where I went off. That's where I messed my life up. I was talking to a friend this week who had turned away from walking with God and he hadn't been going to church in many years and his Bible hadn't been read in a long time and he felt really far from God. He was living his life on his own terms. But this week, by the grace of God, he had some kind of awakening a personal revival, and in this moment, he saw that many years ago, he had been hurt by a church, or more specifically, he had been hurt by people in a church. And he said in his heart, 
I'm not going to let that happen to me again. And he pushed away from the church and he pushed away from God and he stopped gathering with God's people and slowly began to slip away from a relationship with his creator and sustainer, Jesus Christ. But the gracious thing about God is that this, uh, well, I guess let's say this. The funny thing about it is this downward slide away from God might have been prevented if my brother and his previous church had heeded the advice of Solomon that he gives us today. And he says this, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Thankfully for my friend, God never gives up on his children and he has been continually pursuing him and showing him grace and calling him back into friendship and fellowship. And my friend got a chance to repent and place his faith back in Jesus Christ and join us here at Sacred City. But I want to ask you this morning, and I want us all to ask ourselves this morning, why does Solomon put a warning label on going to church? Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now, I usually have to do a lot of work in bringing this up to date. This one I really don't because Solomon, he built the beautiful temple, right? That's where all the worship of God went on. Jesus Christ became that new temple and now we become the people of God. We are the church of God. And so this is really talking very simple. We can trace this kind of our biblical theology and this is what it looks like to go to church. So Solomon is really telling us, watch your step when you come to the Sunday gathering. Watch your step when you come to worship God on a Sunday morning. This reminds me of a quote I read once from pastor and theologian Eugene Peterson. And I think I've got it up on the slide here. It says this, Sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted, posted with signs reading, quote, Beware the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. Now that might be shocking to you. I think many of us might think that God doesn't really care about what goes on in church as long as we talk about Jesus. But that isn't the case, and I'm gonna, we're going to see today, some ways of doing church are not helpful at all. Solomon will call them the sacrifice of fools. And he'll say, even though that these people are doing them, they don't know what they're doing. What they're doing is actually evil. So what we're seeing this morning is the way we worship God really does matter. Solomon is teaching us this morning that we should worship the right God. Listen, worship the right God in the right way. It's not just enough to be worshiping the right God. We must worship the right God in the right way. Now, to get you caught up really quick, over the last four chapters, Solomon has been telling us that everything under the sun is trapped in a cycle of vanity. This va vanity is his idea of kind of, it's not necessarily meaningless. It's like breath that you see on a cool morning, right? 
that it's, it's gone, it's, you see it, it's there, it's a reality, but you can't grab it, you can't hold it, you can't keep it in, right? It's here today, gone tomorrow. He says that there's nothing new under the sun, and most people who are born on this planet end up wasting their life, in his term, quote, chasing the wind. Think about that word picture. What's it like to chase the wind? Well, I'll tell you one thing. It takes a lot of effort, right? Actually, Phil's pretty good at chasing the wind, I heard. <clears throat> right? You're just running. That's what you're doing, right? You never stop running, right? Your heart would be racing 100% of the time. You'd be very busy, but here's the reality. When it's all said and done, what have you gained? Nothing. You've never caught it. You didn't catch the wind. You just chased it and chased it and chased it. Now listen, Solomon's teaching us several things. One, he saw a couple of weeks ago, that's what it's like to live out of envy for your neighbor. If your envy of your neighbor is driving your behavior, your performance at work, you're living your life to be better than others, that that's a chasing after the wind. That's what it's like trying to gain an identity through building a great career or gaining financial security. That's what it's like to live like your kids are your primary source of meaning. You will always be busy, but you'll never really gain anything. It's a chasing after wind. But we've also learned, and this is the redemptive piece, this is the encouraging piece, over these past few weeks, that though this world is caught in this cycle of vanity, God surprisingly has entered into this vain life, this vain world, right? He's entered into this sin-sick world from beyond the sun to redeem that which is under the sun, to save us from our sin, to restore us back into a right relationship with him and with each other and with his created world. So Jesus, we're seeing week after week, Jesus is the answer to the vanity of life. He makes everything we do meaningful from changing, changing diapers to changing the oil on our car to renewing our house to doing great work in our city. Jesus makes everything we do meaningful. Everything we do can have eternal significance. But listen, though that sounds like a Sunday morning Bible study answer, Jesus makes it all worthwhile, right? It's not meant to be trite. You cannot, Jesus is not a sticker. We peel off and stick to whatever it is we want to do, right? You, you can put a Jesus fish on your car. It does not make you or your car Christian or you're driving any better. It does not guarantee you're living your life in relationship with God. And what we are going to see today and learn from Solomon is, listen, in a world, picture a storm, in a world swirling in vanity, God has placed a shelter from the storm. He has given us a shelter, a refuge, a place to meet God, a place where we can go and we can be 
our minds can be captured and brought out of the vanity of life. We can see the story of God, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. He's making all things new. We can remind ourselves, oh yeah, we're in the middle of the story. He's going to make all things new. It seems vain right now. It won't be vain when we're looking back after he's renewed all things. We can be reminded when we come to this place that life does have eternal significance and it does have meaning. That this place is a place where we're meant to go and wake up from our delusions of self-importance. To see the living God, the eternal one. I love that hymn of the ages song. The the everlasting one. There's a place to find a meaningful life that goes on into eternity. But here's the the, the hard sell that Solomon's going to give us today. Even in that place, and that place, no surprise, is the church. Even in that place, there can be vanity. And because of that, he says, when you go to that place, guard your steps. God has given us a place under the sun where we are meant to behold the one who is beyond the sun. And this place should have a sign that reads, beware the God. And it's my prayer that this God would meet us here this morning. Now, can you imagine walking into this gathering this morning and seeing bright orange or yellow signs that just say, beware the God. There might be next week. It would make you feel like you're walking into some kind of nuclear fallout site. Now, isn't that just, wouldn't that, that's very odd, right? That would be very off-putting. That'd be, it's very foreign to us. I think we're, we're, you know, we far more expect to see radioactive smiles greeting us at the door than signs warning, beware the God, right? Been to many church where people are just far too happy to see me. Hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm fine. All right. Whoa, coming at me pretty quick there. All right. Now, why is that? Why is that? Well, I think the answer is actually quite simple. Church has become about us, about our desires about our dreams, about our preferences, our missions, our needs. And therefore, it's a pretty safe space for us. We feel pretty comfortable in a space that's built on our preferences. This was confirmed for me last month. I'm in my last class of seminary, and one of my assignments was to complete, quote, a community and cultural exegesis worksheet. I know what you know what that. I know you already know what that is, but I'll go ahead and explain it. Here's what it was. I was called, I was told to compare and contrast our Sunday gathering, the way we worship God, and the way the people in our community wish it would would be, would like it to be. And here's the here's the form I was used. It was kind of a, had like a spectrum on it. And I had to ask people, um, normal people. What, what, what kind of church service would you like? Now listen, for, before I get into this, the thesis of this idea and the mantra of what is called the attractional church model is this. 
find out what people want out there and then give it to them in here so that they show up on Sunday morning. That's, the, that's as simple as I can make it. That's the thesis, all right? Find out what they want out there, give it to them in here, they'll show up, they'll keep the lights on, hopefully, all right? Here's the, the, the worksheet I had to work on. Would your people want a celebrative gathering? Happy, happy, clappy, clappy. Or would they want solemn, right? They're just going to be quiet and think, right? We're on that spectrum. What would people want? Oh, nearly every, every young person that I interviewed, celebrative, right? Some of the older folks, I like solemn. I like solemn, all right? They talked about variety in the worship service. Young people, I want a lot of variety. I don't want it to feel the same week in and week out. Music style, contemporary, traditional. Contemporary. I don't like traditional. Formality. I want it highly informal. I want it to feel like a coffee shop when I walk inside. Or on the other side, formal, liturgical. No way. Use of the arts. Yeah, let's use a lot of the arts. Or no. Should the preacher... The preaching focus be on relevance. That means like what I need to know in my life right now, uh, how to have a better marriage, how to raise my kids, how to handle my finances, um, how to be less anxious while I'm scrolling Facebook, uh, th these things. Or do you want the focus to be on revelation? This is what God's word says. What did people want? Relevance. I wasn't even going to ask them, how long do you think the service should be? <laughs> I'm like, I don't even care. <laughs> now listen, my final paper was a stern rebuke and re um, repudiation of this entire concept of doing church. I think this is a foundationally wrong way of being the church and doing the church because it is built on us. It's built on what we want. It's all about people rather than about God himself. This way of doing church is people-centered rather than God-centered. And it amounts to a chasing after the wind inside the church walls. Listen, it doesn't make any sense. Of course, everybody wants a celebrative worship service. Nobody wants to think about their sin. Nobody wants to be reminded of the brokenness of the world. We want a worship service that treats us like we're in heaven already. Is that helpful for us? I don't think it is. This morning, Solomon is going to give us one overarching goal for our Sunday gathering, for our worship experience. And I want us to heed his advice to understand why our... Why our, a little bit, why our gathering is, why we shape our gathering the way we've shaped our gathering. And then he's going to give us one overarching goal, and then he's going to give us three principles to guide the right worship of God. Okay? One goal, three principles. That's where we're going this morning.
Let's start with the goal. Solomon states our goal at the very end of this section. So look, he brackets this section. This is how we know his theme. He says, guard your steps. That's how he begins it. When you go to church, guard your steps. And then he ends it like this. God is the one you must fear. That's the goal for our worship. That's the goal for Sunday morning. It isn't necessarily to feel warm fuzzies. It's to fear God. Now, that word fear should not stir up a sense of dread, terror, or abuse. If you've had an abusive father or you've been in an abusive relationship and you fear their wrath, that word might cause some anxiety in your heart. Fear God. We see Proverbs, it says, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now it's understandable that that might cause some anxiety in your heart, but that's not the word, the way the word fear is being used here. The word fear means, listen, reverence and awe. Reverence means a profound adoring, awed respect. A profound sense, okay? An awareness, an adoring, awed respect. Trying to pile up words to try to make sense of this. Solomon is telling us that our Sunday gathering should provoke in us a sense of reverence and awe toward God that our gathering is indeed meant to be God-centered and not man-centered. Now, if you think, well, this is just an Old Testament thing. We shouldn't fear God anymore, and that's not the way our gathering should feel. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 and 29 say this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. God's kingdom cannot be shaken. Amen. And, that, and thus, let us offer to God what? Acceptable worship. Now, what's behind that? There are some forms of worship that are not acceptable to God. He says, let us offer to God an acceptable worship. Well, what is that acceptable worship? With reverence and awe. Same words. Fear with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire. Beware the God. What do you say when your kid runs next to the fireplace or the fire pit? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Watch your step. Friend Vice came by, uh, stopped by my doorstep a couple weeks ago and her son had when he was a little kid, he was riding his tricycle and he fell into the fire. See, this is one reason why Solomon says that we should guard our steps when we go to the house of God. To be unthoughtful around fire is inviting disaster. It's in, it's in, you fall into fire, it ruins your life, right? It destroys your life. To worship God in unthoughtful ways can have a destructive impact on our soul. It also shows us no one encounters fire without being changed by it. 
See, when we craft our services around our needs and our desires and our worship tastes and our worship preferences and, and everything that we want, we come in and we just feel comfortable. We don't feel awed like we're in the presence of something unique and something special. And therefore, we don't get changed by it. But Solomon's saying, when you come into the presence of the living God, you're coming into a relationship with a consuming fire, someone who can change your life, whether you're 10 years old or 90 years old, when you have an encounter with him, you can be changed by him. Don't expect to meet God and walk away the same. He's a consuming fire. He's not to play with. To be unthoughtful around fire is inviting disaster. So Solomon begins to compare and contrast what he basically foolish worship with reverent worship. So what's the goal of our Sunday gathering? To produce a sense of reverence and awe and respect and adoration of God, that we would fear God. That's the goal, not to give us warm fuzzies, right? The goal isn't even just to reach our neighbor. The goal isn't even just to help us have a better life. The goal is for us to meet God, the real God. That's the goal, and fear him, adore him, be filled with awe. And he's gonna go on and give us three principles how to do that. Verse one, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Here's principle one. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they, the fools, do not know that they are doing evil. What, first off, we should ask ourselves, what is the sacrifice of fools? We don't want to do that, right? But we see that it's contrasted with listening in the passage. He says, draw, to draw near to listen is better to, than to offer the sacrifice of fools. This shows us that reverent worship comes to the gathering ready to listen to God. But fools come only to express themselves to God. Now, this is another reason why we're to guard our steps when we go to the house of God. The first reason is because of who God is. He's a consuming fire. The second reason is that the church can be filled with fools. And foolish worship that damage our faith that can actually bring a lot of pain and suffering into our life. There's a lot of foolish things being done in church these days. There's a whole network of television that'll show you a bunch of them. TBN, I'll say that. You'll watch all kind of foolish stuff being done in church. When I was a young youth pastor, I did many foolish things myself. Solomon is trying to say, watch yourself, guard your steps when you go to church, because there's a lot of foolish things that are going on in church in the name of Jesus. And if you're not careful, you can be chasing after wind inside the church just as much as outside the church. Now, let me ask you a diagnostic question. Do you come to this gathering this morning to hear from God? Is that why you're here? Do you come in reverence and wait 
for his eternal voice to shake your soul? Or do you come as a religious service offered to him? Maybe you're here this morning just hoping for a positive emotional uplift, just a little bit of encouragement to provide my life with a positive spin to get me through this next week. Solomon says, if what we're doing today is about us and not about God, what we are doing is actually evil. Even if we don't know it, it is mindless religion and it has no real power to save us. And many people have been hurt by it, have been damaged by it, have walked away from God because of it. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Jesus, what does Jesus say when Jesus comes to this earth? He said over and over in the Gospels, he who has ears, let him hear. About hearing. The Apostle Paul writes that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. James, the brother of Jesus says, let everyone be quick to hear and slow to speak. See, our first principle for right worship this morning and every Sunday for that matter is that we come, we draw near to listen to God. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through the sermons. He speaks to us through the songs. He speaks to us through the liturgy. God speaks here and we're here to listen to him. And Solomon goes on, gives us the second principle. Goes right, comes right out of the first one. Be not rash with your mouth. Oh, that one hurts. Nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven. Okay, but you know what? Rash means quick. Hasty means quick, thoughtless. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Here Solomon is saying that we are to, when we come to the gathering, one of the, diff, one of the goals is for us to realize the distance between us and God. Now listen, that's completely opposite the attractional church model. We want you to come in and feel at home and feel well. No, 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 not the attractional model wants you to come and feel, oh, I'm just like I'm in a coffee shop. Feels the same way. Solomon says, no, 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 no. Remember, you're on earth. God is in heaven. When you come into the gathering, there should be a sense of transcendence. This is a place where God is. And God is in heaven and I'm on the earth. His ways are above my ways. His thoughts are above my thoughts. Think about the difference in perspective, right? If you're in heaven looking down, you see everything going on. You know what's happening. You're on earth, you got no idea. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. His ways and his thoughts are higher than ours, the scripture says. We don't come to church to tell God what we need. We don't come to church to try to get God to do what we want him to do. God is God and we are not. 
God is all-knowing and we are not. God is omnipresent and we are not. God is in heaven and his perspective is perfect and good. He knows exactly what we need because he's in heaven. We don't because we're on earth. Therefore, when we come to the gathering, this is his, he says, because God's in heaven and we're on earth, when we come to the gathering, we should keep our prayers and our singing, our words thoughtful, right? We should make sure we're singing good theology and not wasting words. Our prayers should be thoughtful, not a blabbering on and on. Now listen, what it, Jesus says this, nearly the same thing in Matthew 6, verses 7 through 9. He says this, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. God doesn't hear us. It's like God doesn't hear us after, you know, like God doesn't hear your first 10 words. So just say Lord a lot in that part and then get to your real prayer. No, no, no. You don't heap up things. For they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. Listen, why? Because your father knows what you need before you ask him. And so Jesus goes on to say, so pray like this. Our, Jesus says, here's the liturgy for your prayer. Our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On and on, he goes on. He gives us, he teaches us how to pray. Now listen, this is why we choose our worship music very carefully. This is why we prayerfully and thoughtfully script our confessions, our professions of faith, and our corporate prayers together. We want to thoughtfully, reverently approach our Heavenly Father in the way that He has prescribed for us. We want to come and listen to Him first and then pray short, thoughtful prayers to him seconds. We don't want to be rash. Solomon says, don't be rash with your mouth. Not to let our heart utter hasty words before God. Hasty prayers are often foolish prayers. Unplanned, overly expressive worship gatherings are often foolish gatherings, chasing after the wind. Yes, they're exciting and fun, but they're not reverent. And something happened when I was growing up that there was this pressure and there's this push and there was this, this reaction to a reverent worship and everyone said, church isn't supposed to be boring. Now, I kind of agree, kind of disagree with that. I think coming into the presence of a consuming fire should not be boring. Okay, I agree with it that. But if reverence is equated to boredom, then the whole system is wrong. Because we are called to come into God's presence with, with reverence and awe. And we have entertained an entire generation in church with lasers and smoke machines and crazy music and pastors swinging in from the rafters to give illustrations 
And we've literally created children who are now adults who can't sit through a, a sermon, who can't think and listen and hear and be patient. We've done this ourselves by making a worship gathering people-centered rather than God-centered. Now, the third principle that Solomon gives us for right worship of God comes with a warning. Look at it. It says, therefore, let your words be few. Verse three, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. So fools, fools just love to express their opinion. They come to church to express their opinion. They go to MC to express their opinion. They sit down to express their opinion. Verse four, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. Now look at this. Here's the warning. For God has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say, so this person made a vow. I'm going to just tell you what the vow was. Yes, I'm going to give this money to the temple. And then the messenger came and said, hey, you said you were going to give X amount to the temple. Where, uh, where's the money? And this is what he says. Let not your mouth lead you in sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Uh, there was an accounting error. What happened with my bank? I got two accounts. I switched. Uh, I don't have the money. Uh, right? It was a mistake. I wrote the wrong number. I added a zero on an accident. Take that back. Right? There's a mistake. I'm sorry. Don't know what happened. How often have you thought? Now listen, here's, here's, the, here's the principle. Principle is basically, this is it. Everybody, if you get up and, and you move right now, everybody's going to look at you like you're the one I'm talking about. Here's the principle. Keep your promises to God. Keep your vows. And to not heed God's command in this makes us a fool. And God has no pleasure in fools. How often have you thought about the church being a place where we make and keep our vows? Vows to God, vows to each other. We come in a church before God and witnesses to make vows of matrimony. And we say, I will love you come hell or high water, in sickness or in death, richer or poorer, till death do us part. It's a vow before God and it's a vow before others. Do we keep our vows? We come before God in baptism. We come before God in dedication. I will, I will raise my child up in the way that they, they would go. I'll teach him the scriptures. I'll pray over them. I'll keep them involved in a church community. I won't let their sports dictate their life. 
I'm vowing to God. I'm going to worship God with God's people. And I'm going to raise my kid up in the house of God. Do we keep our vows? Or as soon as baseball says, you're in Des Moines this weekend, you're in this place that weekend, okay, I'm going. Can't let the team down. You made a vow to God. We make vows and covenants as membership. We'll pray for one another. We'll love one another. We'll serve one another. We'll carry the burdens of one another. We'll make disciples of one another. We'll give financially of our resources in a self-sacrificial way with one another. Do we keep our vows? Or as soon as one of our preferences aren't met any longer, Joel stops playing the song that you like, you go to the other church. Solomon says, you know what he says about vows? Look at this. He says this. You don't keep your vows? He says this. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? He's literally saying that God, if, you're, if we're making vows to God, and I know all of us have made vows to God, right? You probably did it in order to get the person you're married to right now. You give me this person, Lord, I'll give you my life. I'll go to church every week. Right? You make these vows. He says this, if you make a vow and you don't keep it, God will actively tear down what you're trying to build. You're 401k. You're 401k. Your kid's success. Oh, your kid's success. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Now, he's not doing that because he's mean. He's doing that because he's kind and he's gracious. And anything we're putting before him is going to fail us. If our career is before God, it's going to fail us. So it's gracious for God to tear down the works of our hands, to cause us to come back to him and repent and confess and see our own brokenness and ask him for help. Now, as I'm closing, this should be very sobering for us in this room today who call ourselves Christians. Too often we come here thoughtlessly and without reverence. Too often we treat this just like some other thing that we do during the week. It's like a PTA meeting or it's like the gathering of the Boy Scouts or the Girl Scouts. It's just a thing on our calendar. Too often we come here to feel good about ourselves and not to listen to God and reverence and all. I had a young man this week tell me he's not coming to the gathering anymore because he's living in sin with his girlfriend and he doesn't want to feel bad about it anymore. Foolish! And God will tear down the work of this young man's hands in a few short months or a few short years. I've seen it too many times. Too often we come to church to try to get God to bless our pet projects, our family goals, our career ambitions, 
And too often, we make vows before God that we don't have any intention on keeping. For this, there's only one answer that's right, and that is for us to repent and once again look to the one who came to rescue us from the curse of a vain life, lived under the sun, and a vain life lived inside the church. Solomon shows us here that vanity, yeah, can be found in the church, and vanity can be found in the heart of Christians. And this presses us to realize just how good the good news of the gospel actually is. Listen, it is not our worship to God that saves us. It is not our church going that makes us acceptable to God. It's not our liturgy that makes us acceptable to God. We Christians stand just as guilty before God, actually probably more so since we have the scriptures and we claim Christ more so than our unbelieving neighbors. Indeed, as God said through Isaiah, our righteous deeds, let's say it, our church going, our worship to God is like filthy rags that they are incapable of bringing us into the presence of our holy God, the consuming fire, because even our best deeds are shot through with sin. But in our desperate situation, let us not despair. God has not left us without hope. He has sent Jesus, listen, to worship for us. We often say Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. That's an important phrase. That's an important doctrine. It's an important mantra for us to understand. It's important for us to see that reality here. Jesus worshiped God for us. Jesus offered to God an acceptable form of worship, a holy, reverent worship full of awe. Look what Hebrews 5, 7 says this. In the days of his flesh, so when Jesus was in the flesh, in his incarnation, Jesus, look, offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. So, that so listen, reverence can be loud. I'm not saying it's got to be quiet and somber. It can be loud, right? Loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And look, he was heard because of his reverence. Jesus approached God in worship and reverence. He was our perfect high priest, the one who worshiped for us. The text goes on to say that although Jesus was a son, he was our perfect high priest. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, being made perfect. He became, look, the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. When we put our faith in Jesus, Jesus is our high priest. He worships for us. He pleases God for us. He obeys God for us. And if after we do that, listen, Romans 8, 1 through 4 can be true of us. Let me read that. I know you had it memorized, but I'll just go ahead and read it just for giggles. Romans 8, 1 through 4. Listen, so do you feel, hold on, do you feel a weight in here this morning? 
You feel that you have made vows to God and you've broken those vows, that you've approached him in an unholy, unworthy, unreverent, irreverent manner. And for that, you stand condemned. You're in danger. Christ has worshiped perfectly for you. And because of that, Romans 8, 1 through 4 is true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order, look, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That means Jesus worshiped for you he, he completed the righteous requirement of the law. He worshiped rightly. And now that right worship of God can be counted for you, toward you. Jesus worshiped in your place. It's good news this morning. But listen, there's a simplistic way of believing the gospel. I'm gonna go to one more scripture. There's a simplistic way of believing the gospel and it's this. Jesus did everything for us, so now we don't have to do anything. Because Jesus rose from dead, now our gatherings could just be happy, clappy every week. doesn't really matter how we worship. Jesus, you know, we just put the Jesus sticker on it. There's a couple different places in the New Testament that show that that is absolutely not accurate. One, this little situation with Ananias and Sapphira. You should look that up. They made, a, they made a vow to God. We'll give this amount of money. They lied about it. God killed them. Post-resurrection, post-filled with the Spirit, they worshiped wrongly, they lied to God, God killed them. Second spot, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23. For I received from the Lord, this is the Apostle Paul writing, what I also delivered to you, that Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is why we worship God through the Lord's Supper every single week. As often as we do it, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. But look, verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in a unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body in an unthoughtful, unrepentant, unreverent way eats and drinks judgment on himself. He goes on to say that's why some of you are sick and some of you have died. You've worshiped God wrongly in the supper. Doesn't matter how we worship. We're under grace. Wrong. It does matter. It matters gravely. We are 
to approach this supper week in and week out with thankful hearts and repentant hearts. We, we are to do it thoughtfully. We're to search our heart and say, God, where have I wandered from you? Don't let me take this in an unhealthy, unhelpful, unthoughtful way. You're giving me your body. You're, you've, you're giving me your blood. Help me discern the body. Help me think about what Christ has done for me. Help me think about my own life and how, how many vows I've made to you and how I never live up to them. Let me not be dismissive of that. Let me take it to the cross and see that only the worship Jesus, the worship of Jesus covers that for me. Don't swagger up to this table. Guard your steps. Father God, you're the God who is in heaven who does whatever he pleases. You are the eternal one. You are the one that has no beginning and has no end. <laughs> we are a vapor. We are wisps of smoke. Here today, gone tomorrow. And we repent for making our worship about us and not about you. We repent of thinking that you should accept us because we're trying kind of hard. We're putting a little effort in. Our worship is foolish. It's vain. Forgive us for our rash words. Forgive us for our unkept promises. Forgive us for our broken vows and renew a right spirit in us. Help us see that Jesus never failed. He always worshiped rightly. He always held God in reverence and awe and worship. And he fulfilled all the law's commands for us and he sent the spirit. He was killed for us. He was resurrected for us. He sent the spirit to us. And now we have the ability by faith in your promises and enabling of your spirit to keep our vows, to thoughtfully worship you, hold you in reverence and awe. Would you enable us to do that this morning? We come to this table. We come as sinners in need of saving, in need of redemption, need of hope, need of restoration. Would you further that process in us by giving us your body, giving us your blood? There are no perfect people here. There are no perfect worshipers here. Jesus was the only one. And so we open up our sin-stained hands and we're reminded once again, we get to come through our high priest. Jesus enables us to worship rightly. Those who are in sin, willfully continuing in sin, I pray that you would bring repentance and you would keep them from the table this morning. They would not eat them judgment on themselves. I pray that you'd bring us to repentance and fill our hands once again, the body and the blood of Christ that was broken and shed for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.